if you've had experiences uh, of uh, images that have affected you deeply, um, if you've had experiences of sensing with soul, then uh, you'll recognize that using a term or describing it as a kind of alchemy um, is, is appropriate. There's a kind of transubstantiation of the sense of our, our, ourselves, of an other, others, other human beings, of the world, of nature, of, of, of bodies, of matter, um, all these aspects of our existence and uh, all these realms of perception, if you like, are, are transubstantiated through the process, which of course is central to uh, what alchemy, or one way we can see what alchemy is or was. Um, and so when we talk, if we talk in those terms of the, the, the art of the alchemy of uh, imaginal practice, etc., then uh, we can perhaps look into analogies of um, the, the alchemical vessel, etc., and the different processes. Um, a kind of crucible is needed, or some kind of vessel, actually, there's different kind of vessels in alchemy. And we don't want to stretch that analogy too far. Um, it's a breakdown pretty quick, probably. Um, or we could talk about... Um, uh, you know, if we're asking, what is it that opens up the world of images? What is it that opens up the world to being sensed with soul? Um, <clears throat> what is what kind of, if you like, to use another analogy of, of birth, what kind of womb, um, what's involved in the gestation of uh, those kinds of perceptions, those kinds of images, what's involved in caring for the birth and then caring for... Uh, the tending to the image or the sense or the perception or the soul-making transformation that comes. So we could use either of those uh, metaphors, analogies, either the alchem- alchemy or the sort of uh, birth from a womb. But again, I don't want to stretch them too far. I want to say some preliminary things um, today that I hope will be helpful and then get, as I said um, last night, uh, get into m- more detail about some of the aspects of skill and art in these practices. So, <clears throat> one of the pieces that I really want to return to and emphasize is um, the importance, uh, in, in later talks of this series, is the importance of the relationship to our emotions. That this, um, the re- that relationship has to be um, within a certain range. Um, if I dismiss my emotions, if I bypass them, if I deconstruct them, if I zap them with some emptiness ways of, way of looking, um, atomize them or whatever it is, um, spiritualize them away, etc. Um, then the uh, crucible cannot heat up enough to um, ferment and to catalyze the alchemical process. 
If, on the other hand, I'm just lost in an emotion um, without mindfulness, without any sense of uh, a kind of uh, skillful relationship to that emotion, then um, th- that also will will not be helpful. The the, the, the alchemical process, the gestation, um, won't be served, uh, won't be permitted, or is very unlikely. Um, so part of that emotional relation, I'm going to come back to this in detail, but it's, it's, it's a really important point, um, part of that sort of range of helpful relationship to emotions that allows um, <clears throat> imaginal practice and sensing the soul, um, of course, has to do with sensing in the energy body, etc. We've talked about and the energy body involved more than just emotions, but, but this is really important. I want to return to it. Um, as I said late in later talks, but just say a few things um, about that, and a few things about you know uh, what what are the conditions that kind of support um, the the birth of images, the reception of images. <clears throat> so, in relation to emotions, actually, someone uh, a little while ago on retreat um, who'd had who'd done quite a lot of um, imaginal practice and, and really kind of in, in his element there, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, asked me a question in an interview. Um, and he asked, uh, came in, and, and one of the things he asked was, um, or reported, it says, um, some images, uh, you know, recently come and seem to last just a few seconds or, you know, a minute or two. And um, I can see that all the elements are there, all the nodes of the lattice are there, he said. And also they have a big effect, you know, uh, but then they're gone. Uh, Whereas it used to be, he reported, that images would stay and I would be with them for one or two hours or more, the same image. And he asked, "Is, is this just a natural change as imaginal practice develops? Um, that images get um, shorter uh, in, in duration. <clears throat> so I thought, mm, that's interesting. I, I don't actually know, but I don't think it's necessarily just a natural change as imaginal practice develops. So what occurred to me was two two factors that might be uh, relevant there. Um, it may be uh, that when there is not a sustained emotional challenge in one's life, um, for example, um, uh, I don't know, some kind of relationship crisis or even a marriage crisis, some long-term dukkha, um, a, 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 a really challenging illness or working on a project that's really um, stretching and challenging you in, in, uh, in certain ways. Um, I'm going to come back to this. Uh, this is a really important point. But it may be that when there is not a sustained emotional challenge in one's life, it may be that images don't, uh, they don't actually need to last a long time. Let's put it that way. Uh, put need in uh, inverted commas. Uh, images don't need to last a long time. The emotional energy um, that is present is part of what gives birth to and sustains an image um, uh, for us, 
in in relationship to those images, out of those in, out of those emotions, and out of those emotions, um, if we relate to that emotion the right way, um, we don't need to be with them uh, a, a long time necessary um, necessarily. Um, the exception, so some images do last a long time, some less, but um, it might be that the ones that last longer are coming partly, uh, or that duration um, is, is coming partly out of the uh, emotional ferment that's there um, in, in something that's really challenging emotionally. Um, an exception might be the kind of beautiful uh, cos- cosmopoesis, um, cosmopoesis that we experience when um, uh, an imaginal sense spreads to the whole world, uh, or the one whole environment. There's a sensing the soul of one's whole environment, not just of one object, intrapsychic or extrapsychic. Um, or, or it could be. Uh, one one object uh, sensing with soul, extra psychic object sensing with soul, um, but there you know for instance the garden becomes a deva realm, an angelic realm, or something like that. As many of you have experienced that kind of thing, um, and that can be sustained um, uh, with from or with a kind of emotional well-being, some kind of quasi-janic state or well-being, etc. And that that is the emotion, so to speak, that's sustaining, uh, that's part of sustaining, if we use that language, this that perception. Um, so that was one uh, reflection that occurred to me. The second is, uh, and again it's something we'll come back to, but um, an image needs us to tune uh, to whatever uh, are its most soul-making aspects. So sometimes, again, we get hung up on the visual and the clarity of the visual or, or something, or we're demanding some, some visual clarity or, or, or something like that. Um, but it, that may not be at all what's uh, most soul-making, uh, really where the juice is, where the life of the image is and the vitality of the image image is. But if we don't tune to what is most soul-making, and then there's not a formula for what is obviously most soul-making, I have to... I have to uh, intuit that, feel it, sense it in the moment without a formula. Um, so my antennae have to be up, I have to be receptive and sensitive. But if we don't tune to what is soul-making, if we're actually focusing on something else, um, uh, some other aspect of the image, the image will lose its energy and its cohesion, and, uh, for instance, the mind gets distracted, etc. So... Emotions have a part, um, they're an integral part of um, imaginal practice and sensing the soul. We could say, and I can't remember if someone suggested or asked, you know, is, is vulnerability uh, uh, one of the nodes, perhaps? Is it, for instance, a 29th node? Um, so that that to me is a really interesting question. Um, of course, we we could we could put it there. Absolutely, um, the, the 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 elements are not uh, kind of rigid dogmas, or, or you know they're not engraved in stone on tablets, etc. Um, 
But let's explore a little bit this this notion of vulnerability. Um, uh, vulnerability actually means from from the Latin vulnera as a wound, as a vulnerability able to be wounded. Um, it's it's sensitivity, if you like, um, but also it's more than sensitivity. It's this capacity to be wounded. Um, uh, a vulnerable a vulnerable wound can also be an incision, which is also a kind of opening. You know, when when there's a cut in the body, there's a kind of opening there. You know, um, but let's let's um, ponder this a little bit. Vulnerability. So uh, some people might be nervous um, with respect to imaginal practice, um, and believe or fear, uh, be concerned that they're vulnerable to some kind of possession by an image or a kind of loss of control or loss of their autonomy. I do not think that is a real uh, possibility, a real vulnerability of um, soul-making and imaginal practice. Uh, In other words, I I don't think that's uh, at all likely to happen. I've never come across it. I... uh, it might happen in other other circumstances, but not the way we're teaching imaginal practice. Um, a person might, however, carry that fear uh, of of being possessed as a sort of habitual pattern uh, of expectation and behavior, etc. Um, and they might carry that into any relationship. Fear of being taken over, of being dominated, of losing one's autonomy. Uh, any relationship, human or imaginal, a person might have that concern or notice that pattern. I actually do lose my autonomy or I seem to. Um, and that fear, if it's there, will hinder the soul-making. It will, it will actually block the soul-making dynamic, the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, from expanding and deepening, widening, uh, getting richer, more complicated, etc., or one might have, uh, for example, a tendency to um, towards merging with another, or uh, and in that way, kind of um, not so much being possessed, but something like that, or withdrawing. The opposite, sometimes what psychologists call a schizoid tendency to withdraw, to split, to kind of hide back in oneself, so to speak, or even behind oneself, um, or alternate those. There's a sort of uh, there might be a pattern of I do this and then I and then I withdraw I I merge and then I withdraw and and I don't seem to have any control over that. Um, either of these tendencies, the merging will uh, or the withdrawing will prevent um, eros in our terms. It will block the eros. The merging why? Because we've said that eros needs two, and when we merge, we've lost the two. And the withdrawing loses the, the vitality of the connection. The libido, the, the juices, cannot flow between self and uh, in that potential imaginal object or beloved other or whatever it is. Um, so a person might be carrying those patterns or those fears and they will have an effect, but in itself I don't think uh, imaginal practice and sensing the soul has has, um, has that kind of da- danger to it. If there are those fears, and or that one recognizes, oh, I do have these patterns in 
just as in any relationship, not just in a relationship with an imaginal object, then that's where we um, can train a little bit. In uh, That's why we've been doing those tunus exercises, or what we call sometimes the balance of attention, e- either way. Um, actually, what is it to be with another, whether that other is uh, uh, something from the natural world, whether it's a human other, whether it's a... Uh, intrapsychic image. What is it to be in relationship with another, where there's the the two-ness that is connected and alive, that the eros can flow without uh, collapsing into one, without emerging, without losing myself in the other, or without um, a, a withdrawing. And so one can practice that, and I'll hopefully return to that a little bit in the series of these talks, um, how we can kind of fill out that practice a little bit. Again, talking then about fundamentals, uh, basics, um, uh, uh, or, or potentially roots um, of, of, um, of soul-making practice. There might be a kind, I mean, there, actually there certainly is, um, a, a vulnerability uh, to craving taking over, or something that uh, starts uh, as eros, or uh, you know, some relationship which, which feels like it's full of eros, and then that eros becomes craving at any point if we're not caring for it, if we're not tending to it well. Uh, the, the expansion and the, uh, the opening and life-giving uh, and um, dimensionalizing, etc., that Eros um, supports, allows, engenders, uh, co- is, is co- collapses when the Eros collapses to, to, to become craving. Um, and that's a, a definite vulnerability, if you like. And of course, craving is, is dukkha, is, is painful. So there's a kind of vulnerability to the wound of the dukkha of craving at any point. The good news is that um, all this is quite label, labile and quite amenable to... Um, uh, our, our input, our responses, our careful guiding, so that, sure, um, we might be working with another human being in a diet, we might be working with an imaginal object, we might be working um, with uh, a human being who's not present for us, but who has become imaginal, um, and there's a lot of eros, and then that becomes craving, but it's very possible uh, to to then reopen that craving so that it becomes eros. So yes, there's a vulnerability there, absolutely, but it's not uh, it's not anything that uh, one cannot, as one develops the art of practice, one one cannot learn how to kind of respond to skillfully and get back on track. I suppose there's a vulnerability too with um, sensing the soul, with uh, working with images. There's a vulnerability, um, a kind of vulnerability to my duty to an image, to the sense of the duty that I might have to an image or to a, 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 a sense of things when they're sensed with soul. Um, 
partly, I mean for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is because that duty that comes from an image or a perception, a sense of something or things that has really uh, touched us deeply in the soul, that sense of duty often wants to be seen by others. Um, it wants to be expressed in the world and seen by others. Again, this is something I'm going to return to. Um, and it wants to be valued. And, of course, that's dangerous territory because it might be that we are blocked in one way or another, internally, externally, and not able to express it in the world. It's not seen by others. Or it is seen. We have expressed it. It is seen. Um, but it's not valued by other human beings. And so that's a vulnerability, and that vulnerability can never be entirely under my control or predictable. I cannot guarantee that what I find valuable and what I uh, um, am loyal to, a loyal servant of, in terms of... uh, uh, discharging my duty, so to speak, um, from the imaginal sense, I I cannot guarantee that that will be received well, noticed, paid attention to, valued by others in the world. There's, of course, plenty of uh, instances through history um, where uh, people have, have done that and it hasn't it hasn't been valued, but perhaps the value comes a hundred years after the person dies. So Van Gogh, or you know, there's countless examples. Um, but there is that vulnerability, and uh, so the duty is a kind of vulnerability. It's a burden. It's not. Uh, a, a, a guaranteed success. We might have the pain of some kind of failure, the pain of some kind of incompleteness, incompleteness of the human connection, and and a frustration of the soul's desire to be seen. Again, I'll return to this. This is quite important, and it's quite um, contrary to a lot of sort of more popular psychologies that would just put such things in. Um, delusion, of course there is a danger of that, but an over-reification, um, or, or put, put them in the categories of ego. Oh, why do you want to be seen? Why do you want to make such an impression on people? We'll come back to this in later talks. Um, sometimes that... Uh, I think if we talk about vulnerability in relation to imaginal practice, I, I don't know that it will ever be that an image comes uh, or a a sensing the soul is there and in that moment the very perception of the image sort of blows us away in the sense that it's it's actually more than our circuits can handle. Sometimes it's the case that that, that the eros can feel more than we can handle but um, that's true but I've talked about uh, how how to sort of work with that skillfully and and that's a real... um, uh, important part of art, how to handle a lot of charge, how to develop one's capacity and one's skill handling eros so that it stays um, productive and doesn't shrink into craving and doesn't um, kind of just feel too much energetically to tolerate. 
I don't know that um, the sort of emotional impact of an image can can actually be, you know, I, I, I doubt that we're ever given more than we can actually handle in the moment. But sometimes the, the duty aspect, for instance, may seem sometimes to us to be more than we can handle, more than we can take on or do. We're asked to do something that feels really at the edge of... Um, our our capacity or capabilities it may seem that way um, I was thinking about um, Mary uh, Jesus' mother at the Annunciation when the angel Gabriel came and announced to her that she was uh, pregnant and pregnant with divine life and um I think it's in the first chapter of Luke, if I remember, it's probably in the other Gospels as well, but she says, she responds to the angel Gabriel when it comes to announce this in the Annunciation, says, I I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It's beautiful, the the humility, the, the, the openness, the willingness, the surrender there. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the duty that she has as a mother, um, uh, was not easy at all, was it? They had to, if you know the the stories in the Gospel, they had to flee uh, from where they were living and escape Herod's um, persecution of newborn infants and uh, his murdering of newborn infants. Um, Her son Jesus, as you may know, was... uh, It's kind of read between the lines in the Gospel, and, and he was regarded as a bastard wasn't sure who his father was. Was Joseph actually his father? Don't think so. Um, and, of course, in that time, in that culture, that had a, a huge uh, negative stigma to it. Um, to be a bastard, not to have a father, um, not to know who one's father was. Um, so Mary, as well as Jesus, obviously, had to deal with that. That was part of her duty. Raising uh, uh, a son uh, who was regarded in the community as as a bastard and kind of ostracized for that, and then of course Jesus is is um, put to death um, and crucified, and Mary at the foot of the cross and um, losing her son. So the the duty that she uh, assented to, that she opened herself to, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Um, uh, came at a cost, really uh, stretched her, we could say, I'm sure, in human terms, if we if we look at it that way. You can also turn this around, though, uh, this question of, of vulnerability. Um, in, in this uh, story of the Annunciation from the Gospel, um, and with, with all these things and the, the, the Bible and, and all that, it's like, can we hear it with a, with a kind of imaginal poetic sensibility and allow its dimensions um, to open up for us instead of just regarding it as a, in, in a, hearing it, reading it um, completely flatly, where, of course, it just sounds um, ridiculous to our modern sensibilities and, and assumptions, etc. What if we hear it um, imaginally, we bring our imaginal sensibility, our poetic sensibility, our religious sensibility, um, and all the openness of that means, and uh, that that means 
um, for the heart, for the soul, for the being, for the poetic sense, for the religious sense, for the soul sense. Mm. And all the hermeneutic, the interpretive, possibly infinite interpretive possibilities that such stories open up. So that they really are, again, because, because when we relate to them as images, they become unfathomable. They take on those nodes. They become unfathomable. And that means <coughs> unfathomably deep, unfathomably um, always um, always harboring m- more possibilities for interpretation, for touching us, for angles of perspective on, on that story. But if we, t- if we read it, listen, listen that way, this, this beautiful passage um, from, from the Gospels, um, you can also say, actually, God is vulnerable here. It's not just Mary who's vulnerable. God is vulnerable here. Because Mary may say, no, I don't want this child. I'm going to have an abortion. I'm going to, uh, I, I don't like it. You know, what will people think? Um, Etc. Um, perhaps that's why, from a certain angle, that's why her words in response to the angel Gabriel's annunciation are recorded. It's not just um, her humility, but God's dependence on her ascent and her attitude and her relationship and, and the beauty of that, and also the angels. Um, so that um, God depends on human assent, human perception, and human action. We've touched on that, um, or mentioned that in in a number of talks over over recent years. This is Zoharic teaching of how we create God, how God needs us, or somehow that our um, perceptions, our intentions, our actions, our thoughts, our conceptions are part of... um, Allowing, supporting, and engendering a harmony um, in 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 the Godhead, and even further, sometimes the Lord says, is, "is as if we create God through our uh, attitudes, uh, perceptions, conceptions, acts." There's also, you know, that uh, kind of puzzling passage. Um, in the Old Testament where Jacob, uh, an angel comes to Jacob um, as he's traveling, uh, as he's on a journey, and an angel comes, I think, in the night, and um, and Jacob wrestles all night with the angel. And, and he wins, Jacob wins, but he's wounded, and he carries a wound. Uh, the, the angel wounds his thigh, the vulnerability, the wound, the, the capacity to be wounded. Again, what, what would happen if we read that um, and, and sensed into those kinds of stories um, imaginally? Actually, if we don't hurry through that um, story of Jacob and just fill out a couple of other elements that are relevant and resonant to our paradigm of uh, soul-making and sensing the soul and imaginal practice and this issue of vulnerability... Um, <clears throat> the angel and uh, Jacob, and sometimes it refers to the angel as God. Um, uh, so it's either an angel or God or 
the angel is the face of God. They wrestle all night, and in a way, uh, the angel couldn't completely overpower Jacob, but uh, wounds him at the hip and the thigh and the hip, um, but also blesses him. Uh, and <clears throat> so those two, in in that story, they go together. The blessing uh, from the angel, the blessing from the divine, and the wound go together. And um, also, the angel then, uh, in blessing him, gives Jacob a new name. and gives him the name Yisrael. And uh, there's different interpretations of what Yisrael means, um, what Israel means. Um, so Philo, the ancient Jewish Platonic philosopher, um, interpreted uh, the, the, the meaning of Israel. El is God. Israel is, is he or one who sees God, one who sees the divine. Corbin, uh, Henri Corbin also um, follows that interpretation um, as a meaning for what Israel. So this this angel and Jacob they wrestle all night um, in uh, in leaving the angel wounds Jacob um, at the hip and blesses him at the same time and in blessing him changes gives him a new name uh, one who sees the divine so again what happens if we hear such a story with our um, poetic sensibility our um, imaginal sensibility so we could say, yes, vulnerability is um, an element of, of the imaginal in certain ways, uh, and not in other ways, as I, as I try to explain that. Um, certainly sensitivity is uh, indispensable as a part of, the, um, uh, of, of imaginal practice and sensing the soul. Um, we need to be able to be impacted, and we need to be able to um, uh, develop our our subtlety of sensitivity. All this I've touched on before as well. Sometimes what can happen, um, if we talk again about the vessel or, or the gestation of images, sometimes what can happen is something touches us in life, some sense of perception of things or, or physical touch even and at the time we register it and we you know interact with it or, or whatever um, but later on maybe a little while later or sometimes even months later um, the memory of it becomes image so this can happen um, uh, in all kinds of ways and through any of the sense doors sometimes it can happen uh, for instance uh, uh, um, in with sex um, there's some kind of sexual uh, lovemaking or interaction with someone, and at the time maybe enjoyable and lovely and wonderful, um, but it's as if sometimes later um, something in the soul is kind of I don't know what we'd say metabolizing or digesting that experience, and and the memory of it becomes image, the memory of that touch, the memory of that kiss, the memory of that uh, togetherness, whatever it is. Um, there's no reason, of course, why, uh, whatever that was, if we're talking about sex right now, why it can't be uh, sensed with soul um, 
uh, right then in in the moment um, during that uh, whatever it is that touch or or that uh, event, um, but sometimes you know there's other things going on in the um, the heat or the complexity of the moment or the difficulty of the moment or all kinds of things, other considerations, other factors prevent it in that moment from being sensed with soul. But later, it can come back um, and be a very, very beautiful, very fertile, very powerful image. Um, someone shared with me a very beautiful story that I uh, asked her permission to share it. Um, so I'll relate to you. It's not sexual, but it's uh, it's this same, it's an illustration of the same principle of a memory becoming an image. Um, so this person was, um, her father was, um, don't know exactly what happened to him, but he was in a coma in another kind of hospital in another country and um, was in a coma for a long time, uh, I think two months even, and uh, or more. And uh, she went there and uh, got an apartment near the hospital and every day she uh, uh, was basically living in the hospital, I think, and maybe sleeping in the apartment, or sometimes sleeping in the hospital, I can't remember. But And uh, eventually, after a few months, of course they didn't know what would happen, but eventually he came out of the coma, and uh, said she didn't know, and I didn't know either, that when you come out of a coma, it's a very gradual process. It's not just suddenly you wake up and everything's just how it was. It's It's a really slow process of regaining your faculties, etc. And they they um, sort of, what's the word, they uh, control that, that gradual sort of emergence with drugs and all kinds of possibilities and all kinds of other uh, uh, things. So he, he was coming out of the coma after, after a couple of months, um, very gradually, and he couldn't speak at first. He had a tube in his throat, and his arms were tied down in the bed. I don't know why that is. That's part of this sort of gradual, uh, controlled emergence um, from the coma that they uh, that they try and uh, guide. Um, and so one evening, she was just washing up, getting ready to leave uh, uh, leave him. Um, for the night, um, for the evening, and um, with his arms tied down in the bed, he beckoned her over with a sort of um, minimal motion that his uh, wrists were capable of. He sort of beckoned her over uh, repeatedly, repeatedly sort of making a gesture, come come over. So um, she was about to go, but she went and um, put her head close to him to see what he wanted. And um, when she did that, he kissed her on the forehead. And that was it. Uh, she was recounting the whole trip to uh, that, that city and that other country and, and the hospital, etc. Was, it was very stressful um, dealing with the hospital and dealing with the family and, and the apartment where she had to scramble to get place it wasn't it wasn't uh, had lots of problems etc so she was completely exhausted um when she got back home um and the, the whole memory of the whole trip was just uh very difficult it was just a, a whole difficult period that she got through 
And then uh, some, really some months later, she was um, walking uh, in meditation, doing some walking meditation at Gaia House. And um, the memory of that kiss to her forehead suddenly came um, uh, as a primarily kinesthetic uh, memory. Again, um, uh, not necessarily visual. It came primarily kinesthetic. She, she kind of felt it on her forehead again. And in that moment, this is months later, she said it felt like a kiss of blessing from God. This uh, gentle, loving, blessing, probably grateful uh, kiss from a father to his daughter. And so she calls the image God's kiss. And, um, and with it, that, uh, that kiss, a, a grace that opened a door to a whole other sense of the whole, the whole time, the whole period, the whole, uh, that whole stretch of months just had a whole other sense to it. So much meaningfulness, so much beauty there, completely different view, um, moved her to tears. And just to be clear here, in, in becoming for her uh, that, that the memory of that kiss in becoming for her God's kiss, as she called it, um, it's not then in that image uh, divorced from the Father's kiss. Uh, it's the Father's kiss still, but it's gaining the dimensionality of the divine. It's not now something other, and the Father's kiss is, is forgotten. There, uh, there is a, a growth and extension, or, um, an enriching complexifying, a dimensionalizing, etc., of, of the original experience and of the memory and of that event. So, if we talk about gestation, there's also this possibility, and again, some of you will recognize this kind of thing from your experience. There's also the possibility, something happening in life, something impacting us, and at the time, we don't even recognize the impact or it actually doesn't have the impact, it doesn't seem to have the impact at the time, um, a little while a little while later, um, that the memory of that exchange, event, touch, uh, whatever it is, um, that sense, um, uh, impact comes back and it becomes imaginal. Um, and sometimes... Uh, that can even be, you know, images can come from um, from life, like I've just described, and um, also from art, you know. And again, it might not be in the moment that something um, something in in a book or a movie feels like it's uh, imaginal and impactful at that level, um, but it, something goes into the soul, the soul metabolizes it, digests it, digests it, and makes image of it. It creates, dis- discovers image, um, imaginal image from this um, thing. So I remember <laughs> this movie, I don't know if some of you have seen it. I saw actually, I don't know if it was the second half or some, some portion. I definitely missed a big chunk of the beginning. So because um, I couldn't quite figure out what on earth was going on. But it might have also been just that kind of movie. It was called, I think it was called Cowboys and Aliens. Um, so anyway, I won't try and explain what it was about, but these cowboys were sort of battling these uh, bad aliens. And there was, it turns out at some point, a good alien. 
um, amongst the, on the cowboy side. Um, and so I was just kind of watching this. I think I, I must have been a little bit drugged on some medication or something, but I was kind of watching it somewhat bemused. Um, and uh, there's a scene right near the end um, where the good alien um, woman... <laughs> Uh, she crawls into the core of the bad alien spaceship with an explosive device, clasps it with crossed arms to her heart centre. There's a gesture, can, can you see, like, crosses her arms, clasps this, this sort of small bomb, obviously a very powerful bomb, to her heart centre, closes her eyes, and blows herself and the bad alien spaceship up um, in an act of self-sacrifice for the sake of her people and the humans on earth um, and I didn't think that much about it at the time um, other than what an odd movie this is with cowboys and aliens in it um, doing battle but um, that image came up for me several times over the next few days and um, it became imaginal uh, for, for a few days it, it, I, I sensed uh, somehow a kind of um i sense it's i sensed it somehow m- mirroring or mirrored in um a way of relating to my life so again here's that echoing infinite echoing and mirroring part of the meaningfulness um uh, a way of relating to my life um with the possibility of dying soon and this was actually um some months before I found out about the metastatis, metas, metas, metastatic, uh, metastases. Um, um, somehow there was something mirroring my life, the possibility of dying soon, my illness, um, a, a, a dedication to, to my work, um, our work, um, uh, my sort of time and purpose and possible sacrifice for the sake of and there's where the openness and the infinitude of the infinite echoing and mirroring certainly my work etc but it had that openness that in infinite echoing uh, uh, of possibility there of, for the sake of what um, but it was powerful in its effects this this sort of image from a funny movie uh, extracted from a, money, a funny movie, um, in the energy body, in the sense of alignment, in the resonances, in the sense of my existence. So her suicide in the movie, her um, dissolution in sacrificial explosion, um, seemed somehow to open up a kind of space of um, time, if you like, um, for uh, my sense of a life dedicated to my soul duty with all the kind of specifics of that and the nebulousness of that and the open-endedness and the fuzzy edges the soft elastic edges and the individual meanings within an infinite meaningfulness etc all of that but uh, I mean that's I choose that partly because it was such a sort of an odd place for an image, uh, a potent image to come from. But basically, um, art, etc., can uh, can spawn images in us. Um, if again, if we talk about the vessel, um, or you know, the, the womb in which images might 
take birth. Um, I I recall, you know, and sometimes I have to remind myself of this now. Um, in in the beginning, the initial stages when I was beginning to explore imaginal practice, um, and how uh, sort of completely opportunistic I would be, um, which I think is what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that's a really good thing. Um, uh, there was a huge willingness to go with the slightest kind of clues or pos- sense of possibility of something becoming an image, um, the slightest cues. Um, and, and that attitude, I think, is really helpful, you know, as part of a helpful vessel. Um, so sometimes we're too, you've talked about this again before, sometimes doubt almost always comes up. Oh, I don't know if that's a worthwhile image. That's probably just rubbish in the mind, etc. Whatever it is, whatever the doubt says, oh, that's too weird. That's not weird enough. What, whatever the doubt is. Um, but that attitude of just being willing to kind of go with something, work with it, see what happens. And of course, sometimes... You feel like, well, that wasn't very fertile. That was maybe that was a waste of time. But you can only learn something in the process. I think at this point, um, for you, uh, it might be a little different because back then, for me, I had no, um, there was no one telling me this is what should happen or this is what you're aiming for, not this or that's um, this is the path. Th- these are the teachings. Th- there wasn't that. You know, I had read some Hillman and some Jung and some other stuff that didn't really touch me. Um, in a way, I was just exploring a whole territory of possibility and seeing, if you like, what, what could be made of it or what felt helpful in there or what felt important and what was helpful in ways of working, what was helpful in ways of conceiving. That's a little bit different from... I suppose you maybe listening to Catherine and I and say it's it's like this and an image is this and not that and uh, but still um, what I want to emphasise right now is there's something about having a, a really um, just go for it sort of research attitude if you like um, and uh, you know not not pre prejudging. Um, uh, whether whether we think something is going to be helpful or not. You, you'll learn a lot that way, and a lot that seems really unhelpful to start with actually becomes uh, can become potent image. That's why sometimes when I give the examples, um, I actually include those moments, oh, and the mind was drifting, and then there was a daydream, and I thought, oh, that's why I was ignoring it, and kind of putting it to one side, and then I decided to turn towards it, and that very daydream that seemed unimportant um, became... Uh, really fertile, etc. Um, so, uh, yeah, I want to encourage that kind of attitude of um, opportunism, uh, research, just trying, just going for it, you know. It's really important. Um, so, uh, and then as one, you know, as one works with an image, of course, because it's so dependent on the way of looking and the way of relating, uh, and, and when, when we can start to tweak and uh, change the relationship we have with an image and respond to what's happening there and tune right and all of that, then um, something that may have seemed very inconsequential or irrelevant or whatever, um, or just silly, um, can become 
can become image. And and related to this, again, I've shared this before, it's like, I remember back at, back in the initial stages when I was exploring this, the images were really quite different than they are now. And I look back and think, well, that really wasn't imaginal in the sense that we have. But it doesn't matter. You know, it's part of kind of getting the feet wet, working working, uh, working out, uh, getting practice, getting, getting skill, getting facility, etc. And, and then you can steer that process guided by, again, what feels soul-making, what feels beautiful, etc., um, as it goes, rather than being too kind of uh, quick to judge, oh, that's not right, oh, that can't be, you know, and then dismissing things and uh, nothing, uh, it's, you know, it's hard for things to get going. Um, you know, I've put out uh, as well, um, maybe in the past of the imaginal talks, maybe in some other talks as well, um, I think there was a whole list of sort of possible kind of techniques, I don't know if to call them tricks, but let's call them techniques to sort of um, uh, see if one can kick-start the imaginal process or at least to receive some images and then they become imaginal. Um, I'm not going to list them again. Um, but sometimes just to say, um, and again, this might be something I've said before, but uh, it's worth saying again, um, sometimes we put too much pressure on, you know, the sort of demanding an image. Um, no one's going to have images all the time, all day long. And anyway, it's really important, as we've stressed on retreat, to move between imaginal practice and other practices like just being with the emotions in, uh, or um, um, being with the energy body or exploring that or samadhi or emptiness, etc. Um, but sometimes we might be trying too hard to get or receive an image and um, it may be that we need to actually be more sensitive or attentive to, kind of in, a, in an unpressured way, um, sensitive and attentive to the pain or lack or confusion we are feeling. Um, or, as I said, bearing, don't put too much pressure right now, just do some practice with the energy body or with the um, emotions, as I said, or samadhi or emptiness or metta or whatever it is. Um, sometimes, and again, partly it's the why I include, um, you know, the fact of, oh, in this image there was some daydreaming or the mind kept drifting off or whatever it was. It may be actually that we need to loosen the mind and and let it drift a bit sometimes. And out of this, somehow, uh, an image will constellate. But if we go back to what we were talking about um, uh, in the definition of fantasy yesterday evening, um, sometimes we need to stop putting the pressure on the meditation the image um, may already exist for us in our lives and how we see our lives at times as fantasy or as a being or event um, in in our life that either is already uh, somewhat imaginal or, or certainly has that potential. And it can be picked up on there um, outside of for, formal uh, meditation quite easily and then perhaps brought into the meditation if one wants. Uh, it's interesting with some Dharma practices and certainly with imaginal practices if we think just a little bit about um, for instance uh, the way mindfulness is often taught Um, the 
in just to make a distinction, um, a difference. Um, with mindfulness practice, the instruction is um, repeated so often it becomes kind of implicit in the contemporary definition or understanding of mindfulness. It's a whole question whether that's actually uh, what the Buddha meant by mindfulness or, or his intention. Um, but the instruction is repeated so often uh, that it, 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 the instruction being, it doesn't matter what experience arises. Mindfulness is not about this or that experience, but it's a way of being with or a relationship to any experience. Right? So most of you will be familiar with that kind of way of understanding and way of practicing mindfulness. So it becomes possible to practice mindfulness every day, um, formally and informally in life, and sort of put the time into practice without any real possibility of failure, because it doesn't matter what experience arises. And if you forget to be mindful, you just remind remind yourself again, you get back in the saddle. With um, metta practice, or breath concentration practices, to go to other more popular practices, um, this same idea is taught, that actually it doesn't matter what the experience is. Um, but usually in those contexts of metta and breath practice, it takes, it takes a little longer to, to, for the student, uh, the practitioner, to catch on that it doesn't actually matter. Usually say, oh, I'm not feeling any metta, or I was feeling it, now it's really dry, or the breath, but... I'm not having any great experiences. Um, and, and again, usually uh, it's taught, or we, we do teach, that in a way it doesn't matter when we're talking about working with, um, sort of uh, using the breath as an anchor or um, doing meta practice. But once it does sort of, uh, um, once that coin, that penny drops um, for the practitioner, that, that maybe it doesn't matter. Um, then similarly, as with mindfulness, similarly to mindfulness practice, you, 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 the student can put the time in and just return over and over, return to the phrases, just keep going, um, just come back to the breath, it doesn't matter, and not concern themselves um, with the need for any particular experience to arise, with doing it wrong, with the whole um, you know, notions of failing or succeeding at practice. So all that's actually really good and really helpful. Um, as a teaching, as an emphasis, especially for our modern culture of individualism, where there's um, also the concomitant, you know, pandemic of self-criticism and inner critic and all that. Um, so it's good. It's skillful teaching. You know, it's really important. It also, though, has its potential pitfalls. Um, sloppiness and yes, kind of even incorrectness or unhelpful practice can become um, a kind of unquestioned and unquestionable norm. So the conscience is kind of soothed by a kind of blind faith. I'm just doing this over and over. But it may not be that that uh, way of practicing uh, or the way of regarding practicing is actually the most helpful. And so sometimes what happens in in some uh, for some people practicing, or in some even some, um, I don't know, sanghas or whatever, is the practice and, beca- and practice in the path can become kind of devoid of any sense of progress or goal, and in a way, then uh, you know, there's a kind of merciful release in that because one does away with any of the 
pressure or the danger of feeling like a failure or that but but it, but it can also in that way that it might mean that it delivers you know only a kind of pitiful fraction of what practice otherwise might um, when we so again just talking about different practices and the kind of attitudes to uh, getting certain kinds of experience. If we um, think about emptiness practices, for instance, uh, I would teach them, um, they actually are supposed to yield certain openings or experiences or shifts of perception. But there's also a way that it can be regarded as simply um, engaging repeatedly this or that way of looking as a practice. Uh, and uh, and eventually subsuming everything else into that way of looking, just as mindfulness as a way of looking start, uh, or stance can subsume any experience, um, even after the fact. Um, so, for example, oh, like I said, oh, now I notice I've been lost. Okay, that noticing I've been lost is a moment of mindfulness. So I'm, I'm, it's okay, it's good. Um, so you're probably very familiar with hearing that kind of teaching. But if we um, also translate that to, let's say, anicca practice or anatta practice, again, as I would conceive it, where one's deliberately um, seeing things as anicca, as impermanent, or anatta, as not me, not mine, not self. Um, uh, and let's say the mind wanders as one's trying to do that practice. Um, uh, and then, But when then one can decide to see or regard the mind wandering, the actual, the wandering of the mind um, uh, is, is, uh, is impermanent, or the staying focused is impermanent. So everything can get subsumed in those practices, anicca, anatta, and again it helps just um, loosen and soften the sort of brittleness uh, and danger that can come with a sort of over, over, uh, over, over emphasis on: Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I getting the experience I'm supposed to get? You know, even when the mind wanders, it's like it's just anicca. The focus of the mind is anicca. The stability of the mind is is impermanent, or that drifting of the mind is not self. It's just the mind. It's just the mind doing its thing. You know, it's what minds do, and then later they do something different. What about, though, if we ask the same question uh, regarding imaginal practice or soul-making practice? So this is a little more uh, complex because we, you know, an image is a certain experience, or an imaginal image is a certain experience. A sensing the soul is um, a certain realm of experience that's not, if you like, um, run-of-the-mill ordinary experience. So... Uh, what what can we say about this? Um, one thing is remember, as I stressed um, yesterday, that uh, there's always the possibility of practicing um, what we might call foundations or fundamentals or, or whatever, um, the energy body awareness, the samadhi, the emotional awareness and skill, practices like anatta, the tunus and the balance of attention, all these are part of soul-making practice. So again, um, A, it's not probably um, wise or even possible to sort of do imaginal practice all the time, but one regards a much broader, uh, you have a much broader palette of practices to dip in and out of. Um, uh, so 
when an image is not um, arising or seems difficult to sustain or whatever it is, one can always just move into these other practices and we're still taking care of um, the foundations and the roots of, um, of imaginal practice. And as we said, you can always revisit um, a previous image or a prescribed image or a kind of conventional um, image, uh, etc. Or one can entertain a deliberate idea. So remember, I'll come back to this um, both tonight and in future talks, um, one can um, entertain a, a, a certain idea, and that idea, because conception... Um, influences, shapes, opens or closes perceptions, um, that entertaining, lightly holding a certain idea about the cosmos, about self, about matter, about the world, about whatever it is, um, about one's personal history, about dukkha, about anything. Um, that entertaining of that idea deliberately, lightly, skillfully, um, becomes like uh, a seed or, or a yeast that opens up the, the perception um, to more sensing the soul. So there's all those possibilities too um, when it seems like certain experiences, i.e. imaginal images, are not occurring immediately. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, we can... Um, Maybe an image isn't arising. Uh, doesn't seems a bit barren or stuff. But we we can um, try to adopt, uh, just gently, skillfully, kind of try to adopt a stance of humility uh, and openness, openness of the energy body, openness of the heart, of the being, of the soul, um, uh, in relation to one's life. That might be in relation to the, the whole narrative of one's life, the span of one's life. Um, in relation to a dukkha, even a trivial dukkha, you know, or relatively trivial dukkha. Um, just kind of, is it possible to sort of uh, find my way into some kind of stance of humility and openness with regard to all of that? And perhaps in relationship to some maybe vague sense of, probably vague sense of divinity um, that is not formed in, in, as an image. So I have a kind of beginnings of a humility, uh, beginnings of an openness, or, or attempting to support a kind of gentle openness to all that, to the dukkha, to the sense of life and being and soul. And I have some vague sense of divinity. It's not an image. Um, but... All that is um, is going to be very it's soul making practice because we're dealing with the elements there are, that are um, you know roots fundamentals um, aspects of of images um, even that if even if an image doesn't arise from that um, it's going to be it's a beautiful space to be in it's a beautiful posture poise of the soul to be in and to practice and it's possible that it will be very fertile that out of that um, humility and openness in relation to a dukkha and in relation to some vague sense of non-imaged divinity um, that for instance um, the self or one's life and one's narrative becomes image out of that out of the 
that soil, that fertile soil, the material in the alchemical vessel, out of the womb that's being created there. Whereas I said before, you know, imaginal practices is um, partly art and partly grace. In other words, there is an art to it. That's why we talk about all these elements. That's why I'm partly giving all these talks and saying, you can do this, or you can do that, or just emphasize this more, or draw that out, or pay attention to this, or whatever it is. There's, there's a, a lot of art, a lot of sophisticated and subtle art that we can develop so that we are um, tending to the conditions that support uh, the possibility of images arising and touching us and moving us and becoming soul-making. But it's art and grace. In other words, there's always going to be an aspect of imaginal practice that is beyond our control, that's not in our power, never completely um, in in our mastery, in the range of our mastery. There's some kind of... We are given images. We don't even know how could I... Sometimes images arise. You, again, if you've been practicing uh, soul-making Dharma for a while, you'll recognize. Sometimes you have an experience, or you're with someone who's reporting and experiencing it. How could, given everything that, they, that, that was going on, this particular dukkha, and that particular history, and that particular view, and this difficulty, and whatever it was, and then some image arises that one never could have predicted, and yet it somehow... Um, uh, carries with it the, the soul's intelligence of somehow perfectly addressing and perfectly opening up in the, in the most beautiful ways, in the most particular ways, um, the most particularly attuned ways, um, everything that was in, involved um, in, in the kind of constellation of difficulty or situation or perception uh, just beforehand. It's a, a gift from the, the depths of soul. It's a grace. We can't we couldn't have conjured that, have, have figured it out. Oh yes, I think I should imagine this. Um, so, part art, part, part art, partly art, and partly grace. Um, and that's really good to, to remember, I think, with imaginal practice. So, yes, we are uh, kind of interested, obviously, in certain kinds of experiences, sensing the soul and imaginal experiences. But... Um, and I'm really talking about attitude. Attitude is part of the vessel. Um, the, the attitude is part of a, a healthy, nourishing, uh, rich uh, womb. Um, let's see. So, um, again, if we, if we talk about attitude um, a little bit... Uh, Sometimes, as I've sort of mentioned, uh, or quite a bit yesterday and um, just briefly tonight, sometimes it's good not to put too much pressure on the visual sense. Um, And this, even when a person knows and has understood, oh yeah, images are not necessarily visual, or that's not the most important thing, sometimes there can just be a, I don't know, is it cultural, is it why, a a habit or a tendency to just even subtly kind of expect or demand some kind of visual experience. Um, So just in the last uh, week or so, I've found a helpful phrase for myself, let the body lead, 
let the body lead. Um, which of course means the energy body and the whole awareness and sensitivity to the whole energy body. And it's as if, again, that has a kind of intelligence. Well, that becomes a factor, and it's one of the elements, of course, but as an element it ignites and um, it is, is part of the alchemy. It's part of what allows the alchemical process. But as if the, the, then something comes through the body or the body senses um, and the body kind of leads the way to an imaginal sense, which may then involve something visual or may not. Um, but instead of kind of uh, almost un- unaware or unconsciously kind of putting just a little bit too much pressure on wanting something visual, some visual experience or transformation of a scene or, or something uh, like that, um, let- letting the body lead. Um, taking the, just checking, taking the pressure off any visual uh, expectation or demand of visuals, and noticing the the heart and the emotions. Sometimes it's about r- relaxing with that and finding um, or, or tuning a certain poise. So a lot of imaginal practice and sensing the soul is really about a poise. So finding just being responsive and tuning, finding the right poise of being, poise of attention, poise of heart, poise of intention, um, attitude, all that is part of the poise that uh, can, uh, you know, will vary from time to time about wh- what poise is it that allows allows um, image to come forth if it's, uh, as I say, part of, the, of, of what's... Uh, uh, the grace of the gods at that point. So, um, a little while ago, really not too long ago, um, it was uh, a, a spring evening, beautiful light um, through the sort of young green leaves and sort of translucence uh, uh, of those uh, the, the foliage and the trees to, to that light. Um, and Again, I sort of let the body lead. Um, I think again, I was in a car, um, and um, and kind of relaxing the body and uh, being aware of the whole energy body, and then and then noticing what came first to the awareness was the sense of being loved. So it wasn't something visual that came first. There was the. Um, uh, the poise was played with a little bit in a kind of relaxation, take the pressure off the visual, be with the whole body, let the body lead, and notice, and I noticed there was a sense of, I'm loved. Um, So it wasn't visual. That's what came first. And again, that's a node, isn't it? It's one of the nodes, loving and being loved. So it was part of one of the nodes that came first, not not any kind of image, not any kind of sensing the soul um, in in the more obvious sense that we might, the more common sense. And being with that very, very lovely feeling, subtle feeling, but lovely feeling of being loved. And, and I wasn't quite sure who's loving me here. Um, and then slowly, gradually, it happened over a minute or two, I think, um, uh, all the trees, um, there's, there was a sense, and again, it's quite vague, and I, I, I'm, I'm pointing out the vagueness so that you will recognize sometimes you have a, a powerful imaginal sense and there are aspects of it that are vague and it does not matter. 
So either the trees were angels, or they were somehow, the trees were associated with angels. Um, uh, angels I could not see, again, not visual. Um, I sort of heard them. Uh, that's the closest I could I could come to it. Um, and these angels that were either were the trees or were associated with the trees, um, resonant with the trees uh, somehow, um, they were loving me. And and that was the the image sense, the imaginal sense. That was the sensing of soul. Um, but it was probably allowed by taking the pressure off. It's really un subtle and unconscious uh, demand for a visual transformation, a visual experience. Again, by the way, uh, this points to, um, when we talk about an imaginal image or a sensing with soul, we're talking about a confluence of elements. Energy, body, poise, attitude, um, love, being loved, uh, etc. Um... Again, just just lingering on that example, um, there's again this kind of uh, opportunistic attitude. It's as if, as I said, the the antennae are open and and working, and without pressure, just ready to receive, ready to tune. They're sensitive, um, uh, tuned to receive anything that could uh, be or become soul making. Um, and then, um, so the, the, the sense of being, uh, actually what's also interesting here, um, actually this is a different experience, but it's, it's some, somewhat similar um, that I had. Um, the, the, the being loved came first, and then um, an, an emotional awareness came of grief. Um, and so what does this imply? It implies that, Again, in this confluence of elements that we call a, a, an image, or an imaginal image, or an imaginal constellation, in the confluence of elements there, there's not always a linear or predictable progression of the ignition of the elements of that imaginal constellation or, or of the lattice. So in this case, it was, as I said, the love, the love, being loved came first, then the emotional awareness. Um, oh, there's there's an emotion there um, uh, that was kind of liberated to be felt more clearly and more helpfully and more deeply. Um, now we could ask, you know, we could ask, this is by the Bible, we could ask, was, was that emotion, was that grief there already, so to speak, waiting to show itself to be felt um, when love was present? Um, or is an emotion anyway always a dependent arising, so that it doesn't, like anything else, doesn't pre-exist um, uh, uh, this or that condition that's part of it. So there was a certain emotion that arose with love that wasn't there first, you know. That's by the by. Um... Again, talking about what what can help uh, us to receive, to open to images, to for them to be born, um, for the uh, transubstantiation to happen in the alchemical vessel. Um, <clears throat> sometimes, um, 
you know, we might be feeling quite flat in the sense uh, our perception is quite one-dimensional. Um, this might feel unresourced or unanchored or overwhelmed, etc. And taking that into the meditation, including that into the meditation. Um, and I've talked about this, I think, uh, in the Dukkha and Soul-making talks. There might be a way of um, g- gently regarding one's life um, and oneself um, from the perspective of beyond death, so to speak, subspecii eternatis, from the perspective, uh, from the view of eternity. Uh, as if you see your whole life, your whole narrative, however long that is, um, however long is given you on this earth, in this form, in this manifestation, you see the whole thing as if from beyond time, like a tableau, a snapshot. And that move, um, that that perspective, if you can find your way into that perspective, including um, all the difficulty that's going on, all the challenge that's going on, um, it can that very move itself can allow um, and support a sensing the soul of oneself. One senses oneself with soul, one's narrative with soul, and then also the world, etc. Um, and it may not be that an intrapsychic image arises from that. It may just be that that's the imaginal sense of myself, of my life, of my journey between life, between birth and death, of this whole movement of the uh, narrative with all the difficulties and the challenges and the, the duties and the um, beauties there. Uh, and the particularities. So again, we're not when I say this um, from the point of view beyond time or beyond death, or uh, you know, from the perspective of eternity. Um, I don't mean a kind of view that goes into a perception of it all being one in some vast awareness. That's great. It's a wonderful mystical perception, etc. Really helpful at times. What we're talking about, including and retaining and giving import to and significance to um, the particularities of our soul, our lives, our journeys, our narratives, our difficulties, our dukkha, etc. Um, Rather than dissolving them in some kind of equality of oneness, wonderful as that is at times, different, different kind of leaning. But there's a change in perspective there that allows um, uh, self and, and world to be sensed with soul, um, so that kind of thing is, uh, is is very potent and important too. Um, another example, I, I uh, was so Catherine and I were talking um, a little while ago, and she was sharing something, um, which I won't I won't explain her angle of it. But one of the things she, one of the pieces of of which she um, shared. Um, was something about um, uh, was was an idea the idea I am soul, and it was a it was just a piece of what she was saying, and she was uh, she had taken it and was taking it in a certain direction. But that idea, that phrase, stayed with me. I am soul, um, and I began uh, over a few days practicing with with that idea. It became quite potent for me. 
so there was this idea which she shared. It was just, it was just a, a part of um, uh, something she was sharing, exploration she was sharing with me. Um, but somehow that idea landed in in uh, in my mind and heart, and I I began using it um, as, uh, as as something in in my practice uh, that that helped to engender uh, sensing the soul. Um, so I am soul, and sort of uh, what it really was was. Um, or part of what it was for me, or how I used it, was this kind of movement of identification um, uh, away from a sort of uh, maybe um, typical or default modern view of who I am or what's what's um, uh, the sort of essential reality of a human being. Um, and... It was coupled with this idea of uh, the Buddha nature or God participating in my soul. So I am soul was also that um, I am soul. I, mean, I am part of God's soul or part of the Buddha nature's soul. My soul participates in God, in, in the Buddha nature. So all that lo- was, was part of this loose idea. It, it was um, f- fairly loose but, but potent. In that it um, relativized um, the r- relationship um, and uh, and actually the, uh, with the body and uh, matter, etc., and uh, relativizes also the ontological status of the body. I am soul. I am not um, just body. Um, again, this wasn't like um, filled out as an idea in all its details and all its sort of. Um, philosophy etc it was reasonably loose um, but uh, with that that relativization of the ontological state of the body it's a bit like seeing the emptiness of something um, of, of uh, the body and matter and so um, perception there was a, there was a degree of less fabrication just just some and it kind of loosened and liquefied um, the perception of self, body, world, matter, etc. We talked about this importance of liquefying, loosening through slightly less fabrication. Um, with that, there was um, the uh, element of the fullness of intention, the intention for the fullness of soul making. So, not just I intend to, or I hope that I survive physically somehow miraculously I hope that I this body survives this illness some miracle happens with matter um, sure I can hope that that may be part of an intention even in prayer in in uh, even in imaginal practice but the fullness of intention goes beyond that um, and includes uh, as as more paramount this wanting to serve soul um, so with those elements there, the loosening, the liquefying, um, and the sense of participation, the uh, fullness of intention, then uh, the world around me, this, my body, my illness, my life, um, myself, uh, matter, etc., um, uh, the interaction of body and soul, all of that was, uh, w- was open to sensing the soul. Very, very beautiful and fertile sort of opening that happened. One of the 
kind of more general principles in, in uh, that what, what I've just shared is the fact that there's an idea. Uh, and even when the idea is not that clearly spelled out or worked out, I am soul, and it became associated with other ideas, and might have been a little bit different, uh, or even quite a lot different from what Catherine meant originally. It doesn't matter. The principle is an idea, as I mentioned earlier, an idea can um, be taken up and function as a kind of soul-making seed, a seed for soul-making, uh, a, 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 a yeast, something that fertilizes and opens um, the sensing the soul and the perception of of anything, really. So, um, yeah, again, I don't want to stretch this, um, the, the analogies of alchemy or, or um, womb too much, but, um, and birth too much, but if we talk about, um, you know, how to, uh, take care of images once once they're there and how do we take care of them so here's there's a birth and how do we tend to that infant um, again I don't want to stretch the analogy too far but um, uh, I want to share something from um, a yogi who again uh, gave me permission to share these um, but it just to emphasize this point of um, when uh, when an image is partially formed um, that uh, our, our attunement our kind of um, sensitivity to what is uh, the, the um, what is essential here in the sense of what feels what aspect of it feels soulful, feels the most um, soul-making, and it might be an idea, or it might be an aspect of the image, or or, or could be could be anything. Um, but that um, attuning helps to nourish uh, the image and allow it to become more fully imaginal and, and potent. So um, this person was sharing with me um, a while ago, more than a year probably, but um, sharing there uh, uh, that um, the painter Egon Schiller, excuse me, a Viennese painter at the turn of the century, some of you will know him. Um, uh, Egon Schiller, the painter, and also Bach's music um, are often imaginal figures for her, she said. Uh, not so much Bach, the, the person or the composer, but Bach's music but Egon Schiller, the painter. So these two were images. And she shared an image uh, with me, uh, the image of Schiller painting her uh, portrait. Um, I'm not sure if she was posing naked for it. I'm not sure. But um, uh, but that was the image. And, um, and having heard uh, the teachings uh, that I gave on eros and sexuality, um, and also having felt like there was a certain rigidity, oh, sorry, aridit, aridity in general in her practice, um, which she thought might be blocking her eros, um, uh, because she had she felt no opportunity to express or share uh, share her eros sexually or romantically in her life, and so that she was blocking her eros, and that caused a certain aridity. Um, 
in general in her practice. So she was wondering about that and kind of thinking, well, if that's the case, maybe I should steer the image towards something more sexual. But it didn't feel right. Okay, so it's not the fact of having the thought, maybe I should steer it this way, and then and then steering it um, that way. That in itself, as, as I said last night, is not a, a problem. Uh, um, it, it may be a problem, but we ascertain, oh, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like that's what needs to happen, or that doesn't actually feel soul-making. Partly what was happening here was that there was um, a, a, a limited idea of um, of what eros is, um, so but the not feeling right. She tried something, tried to steer it towards um, a sort of um, uh, image of sex with with the painter, um, but that didn't feel right. And that not feeling right is an indication and a sense to trust, just as the feeling right is also an indication, a sense to trust. Conversely, but again, going back to the point about eros is as is stressed. Um, uh, it's worth stressing again. Um, eros in our language is not necessarily sexual. Okay, so there can be eros that has no no uh, sexual element in it at all, um, and sex can certainly be without eros in our in our sense. Um, but anyway, eros is not necessarily sexual. So perhaps she also had a, a kind of limited idea of um, of eros and also of what what needed to happen in her life, etc. Um, so I kind of was responding to this and suggested that um, there was Eros in the being painted. The painters uh, had Eros for her body and for art and for the making of art. Um, And she could perhaps get a sense or an experience of that kind of subtle, if you like, more subtle, at least non-obviously sexual Eros through his being in the image. In other words, tuning into, here's the image of him painting me. What's his experience of Eros? And not um, confining it or expecting it to be sexual. It might be, um, it might be uh, other than sexual. Said so for art, for body, for beauty, for whatever. Um, and uh, and and. Uh, in his being and in the whole scene, there might be eros also in the sense of being painted, of being looked at like that, of the body being an object of the uh, uh, regard, uh, um, of the reverential artistic regard, uh, an object um, for the perception of beauty, etc. And maybe that, um, again, who knows what would happen. I didn't hear back from her after this, um, after that interview, but it might be that then eros comes in her life, for her own body, in different ways, all kinds of possibilities from from that seed. But again, it's it's this necessity to tune into actually. In this case, where is the eros? What, what, because with the eros will be the soul making sense, right? They go together, of course. Um, so, where is the soul making? Where is the soulfulness? What's the what's the aspect or um, strand of this? complex image already. I've got someone painting me. It's already complex as an image. It has all kinds of things in it. Um, what of that? Wh- where do I kind of hone in on what's soulful and soul-making? And and this is a way we tend to, we care for an image. We, we nourish it. We allow it to grow. Um, same person shared uh, another image um, 
<coughs> which was uh, for, for her, which was uh, actually a passage or a scene from Bach's uh, St. Matthew's Passion. Um, some of you may know it's a great piece of music. Um, and the centurion um, at Christ's crucifixion, the centurion sort of guarding or watching Christ's crucifixion um, in, in Bach's uh, piece, uh, says or sings twice, uh, Truly thou art the Son of God. Truly thou art the Son of God. And she said, reporting this, that passage um, moves me to tears every time. Um, all of it, the music of it, the theatre of it. Um, even though she said, I, I'm not, and I never have been, a Christian. It just something in there moves me. It was, again, it's inexplicable. The soul is touched inexplicably there. Um, and again, her question was about Eros. Um, so, again, there is Eros there. Um, it's in the centurion for Christ. He, in, in, in looking that way, he didn't expect to have that experience. Truly thou art the Son of God. Um, his feelings and gaze uh, towards Jesus are more than just meta. Yes? Um, and certainly more than some kind of coldly logical conclusion about Jesus's uh, ontological nature. Oh, you are divine. Um, uh, there's uh, in 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 carried by the music in those words, truly thou art the Son of God. There is more than meta and more than a sort of um, uh, deduction of some kind of uh, fact, existential fact. Um, unlikely in her image that um, uh, the, the, the centurion is has got some kind of sexual attraction to Jesus. I mean, there's no reason why that might not be part of it, but it didn't it didn't sound like that's what was going on. But this um, gaze and this um, relationship in that moment of the centurion um, in his feelings, there was eros there. They are erotic in our sense, in touch with, um, attracted to, drawn to, sensing the beauty and mystery and dimensionality and divinity of of Jesus. Yeah, and so um, you know, I'm looking for the eros, and the eros goes with the soul making. So tuning into that in the image, um, n- n- relaxing the usual preconceptions in this case about Eros, and tuning into, ah, there's the Eros, how does that feel? What kind of quality does that have? Can I, can I let my soul resonate with that? In this case, the centurion's um, imagined experience, um, or imagination of the centurion's experience, our sense of that, our receptivity to that experience, that's where the soulfulness and the soul-making is. Um, so, uh, Sometimes it's just a more subtle receptivity and sensitivity um, to notice and tune to where the eros and soul making is um, with an image at, at any time. Yeah, so that's part, very much part of uh, what allows an image to have its vitality and uh, allows us to nourish it, to uh, to, to feed it. Um, and again, if we talk about you know tending images, um, again, some of you may have noticed this, but sometimes images happen in sort of uh, in a series. You get um, 
sometimes you get the same image coming back deliberately or it just comes back for a while or long stretches of time or periodically over sometimes years or you know whatever um, but sometimes you get um, images that seem to kind of uh, express a similar theme or uh, have a similar kind of object but they're actually different and we can um, see that there that sometimes images are happening in series uh, like that in there's a series of images um, which is important so I remember um, it's about a year ago I think um, I had an image of um, a dervish, you know, the Sufi dancers, beautiful dancers, mystical dancers, um, out of divine love. Um, uh, and um, it's actually not so important what the image was. Um, what is important is that, again, it wasn't very visually clear. It didn't even have this particular image didn't even have, at the moment of arising and working with it in meditation, didn't even have a very strong impact. And uh, I think the mind was actually drifting quite a bit. It was at a time when I was struggling with um, certain medication and um, and uh, and not sleeping because of uh, a thyroid condition. So the mind was, was drifting. It didn't have a strong impact, and it certainly wasn't very visually clear. A little while later, though, um, I was on a train platform going to see a doctor, and um, and the train was late, so I just took the opportunity to walk up and down the, the platform, um, and the body felt so open and free, and uh, I might say naked, but it, again, it was a very particular kind of uh, feeling of openness, freedom, and, and nakedness. Um, what had happened before that dervish image was that there was, again, a, this whole series of images um, related to um, to body. And um, what, a few of them had to do with um, sensing my body as an instrument. And that came out of um, a little bit what I shared last night about the grief um, in relation to music and giving up the instrument of um, that I used to play as a jazz musician, a guitar, and um, and working with it in you know over a period of time in the meditation, and actually seeing, sensing my body as a kind of instrument um, to be played or for me to play or both, um, and so that was a certain sensing with soul of the body, um, and that was I think some days or maybe even weeks before. Um, but images may come in series uh, to affect this or that, um, to, to make soul, um, the organ of sensing with soul, um, in this case sensing the body with soul. Each individual uh, instance of an image in that series, sometimes we might not even connect them, and then you look back and you see, oh, there's a connection here. Each individual image may not always be powerful, or even think, well, that was kind of neither here nor there, it's not one to write home about or whatever um, but cumulatively um, they their work something is being worked on in the soul again the soul's intelligence is operating in this case um, in a series of images of different um, perceived impacts uh, and importance at the time but somehow the soul is stitching these together over time with with gaps in, in between etc um, and in that walking up and down, that sense of the body, um, 
which is also sense of self, um, sensed as, again, uh, it went into a kind of cosmopoesis in its connection with the surroundings, um, but very particular, particular to that image, particular to the kind of nakedness, uh, sense of nakedness and openness and freedom that came into the body with that. Um, but the point is about the series, and somehow, again, attitude, trust, not dismissing something, because it may be part of a bigger picture which we don't we don't grasp yet, we don't glimpse yet, because we haven't uh, stitched those things together. Something is operating below the radar with an intelligence that is beyond us. And it's only after the fact, or after a little while, we say, oh, there's a process there. Yeah. Um, there's also, you know, I've sort of said this, but it's, it's worth just making it clear, you know, um, some images are uh, very slow to become uh, fully imaginal for all the elements to sort of ignite. Um, sometimes that happens over many sessions, sometimes it's gradual, um, sometimes they don't seem promising at first. Um, so this, again, I think I alluded to it, in the, or spent a bit of time talking about it, um, the whole question of pacing um, in the Path of the Imaginal Talks, uh, and a kind of sensitivity or attunement or wisdom to the pacing um, that is involved in any kind of imaginal birth and imaginal tending or tending to the imaginal. And we need to stay with this for longer or um, move on to another image or uh, whatever it is or let something develop even if it seems not so promising. So this is all part of, um, uh, again, whether we call it part of the womb or part of the tending or part of the birthing, the analogy breaks down, it doesn't matter, but um, I want you to understand the, the, the point there about, really about attitude um, to practice and what actually can um, support more helpfully um, the opening up the world of images and sensing the soul. Um, sometimes uh, a person, following this theme a little longer, um, Sometimes a person uh, has an image and wants to write a poem about the image. Or um, so this is again, this is something for you to find out and and um, and do your own research, etc. Um, I uh, have peers in my life where I write a, a lot of poetry, and it's something very important to me. Um, but I I don't actually. Um, for myself, I don't tend to write poems about images that come in imaginal practice. Um, it feels like that uh, does something, it takes away, for me, it takes away um, some of the potency and, and the possibility of, of that image. Um, so, again, I, I don't want to set down rules, uh, etc., but um, it's something to be careful about and to investigate. Um, <clears throat> whether you want to, um, or, or someone wants to paint paint an image, you know, or whatever, or sculpt it. Now, Jung, uh, I think, insisted uh, that um, when patients could, that they uh, they painted or sculpted or, or rendered um, materially manifest um, some image that that came to them or a dream or something. Um, I'm a little more cautious, and I think, again, here's one instance where perhaps our practice uh, 
you know, forges a different path, goes in a different direction. If I'm, um, if I write a poem or paint an image or whatever it is, um, if I do that or if I do it too soon, maybe that's the op- 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 operative, uh, the, the important word. And if I do it too soon, it may detract, as I said, from the potential development um, to the, the full, full fullness of the image and the fully imaginal and detract from our relationship with it. It may. I'm not saying it will, but it may. It's something to look out for and actually find out. Does it or does it not? Of course, if I'm experimenting with that, if I'm doing some research, I have to experiment with a number of images where I do that and a number of images where I don't do that and begin to see what happens. Or if I decide to paint or write, write it, when and how and what needs to be involved in that process in order not to lose the soul-making potential of the image. So there might be an artistic potential, and that, that's great, but that, that may or may not overlap with the soul-making image. It may be a different thing. Um, because for me, um, I think as, as a poet or an artist, um, one has other concerns. Um, concerns with form, with rhythm, with balance, with sound, with um, all that, or... I think one should have as as an artist or a poet. You know, you're not just describing something. You, you, there's actually a whole other other um, aspects of of the artistic uh, work and product that need need really a lot of careful attention and tuning to. And those are not per se imaginal. Now, it might be that the um, the engagement with with an art becomes imaginal. The self um, uh, art itself, or or the self as artist in that process, that becomes imaginable. That's a slightly different thing, or actually a, a different thing than the image uh, being imaginable. You understand? Um, so you'll have to see with this. But for me, they're actually they they're divergent directions. They're not they're not the same. I have a soul making relationship with certainly with. Um, writing poetry and music and and writing um, even Dharma stuff or whatever it is I'm writing, but um, but that's different than the content, the image or whatever um, being soul making for us and having its full sort of possibility to work in the soul and to become fully soul making and the soul making dynamic in relation to that image to really kick off. Soul making di- dynamic might kick off in relation. To art in general, or being, uh, or writing in general, or being an artist, etc. But that's different than, than with that that thing, that image. Um, so uh, Jung, as I said, Jungians uh, tend to emphasise this materialisation of an image. But I think for us, the materialising may be more in the energy body and in the emotional. Um, emotionally sensitive relationship and in the um, refractions into duty and infinite mirroring. This All, all these are a kind of materialising. You understand? It's materialising in the body, it's materialising in the emotions, it's, it's uh, doing its work there, it's transforming things, it's shaping things. And also, as I said, in, in, the, uh, in the refractions into duty and the infinite echoing mirroring in our life. That uh, all that takes great sensitivity and attentiveness, and if my sensitivity and atten- attentiveness are taken up with artistic intentions, 
as I said before, about form or colour or shading or balance or rhythm or whatever it is, um, uh, that's a slightly, uh, at least slightly different intention than soul making. You understand? In relation to that image. Um, similarly about expressing an image um, uh, or, or manifesting an image or being or expressing it in movement and dance. Um, but again, I don't want to sort of set some kind of law. It's, it's really to explore, but explore, if you're going to explore this, explore it carefully. Explore it with an open mind and be, be thorough in the research. So you don't need to throw everything out. You might decide you can have both. Okay, uh, you can have your artistic process, you can have your dance practice, you can have your writing poems or whatever, or it might be a matter of timing or whatever. Um, but I'm, I'm cautious here about, certainly about laying down any laws. It's for you to find out, but, but if you're going to find out, research with, with integrity and with discernment and with um, precision and care uh, and open-mindedness. Um, some people, we, we did, uh, in, in relation to movement at least, maybe not dance, but um, we we had those um, sessions on, I think it was the Foundations Retreat and maybe some other retreats, I don't know if they were recorded on the other retreats, um, where we explored movement, um, either in relation to another person or on one's own, in a group or whatever, um, and their, its relationship with soul-making and with image. Um, in different ways. We explored a little bit of that. So I think there's huge potential there, really, really um, exciting possibilities. But um, it may be uh, that it, again, it diverts the or hinders, uh, limits the soul-making potential of any particular image. It may be. Um, several people uh, have already said to me that dance and movement stimulate images for them um, uh, and in fact that dance and movement are the most powerful and fertile grounds for the generation of images um, so that may be and there may be individual differences here for other people it, it just renders uh, the imaginal kind of impossible so there's, there's all kinds of possibilities here just from differences in personal kind of uh, propensity um, but also in uh, what can be trained to be to be possible, um, but the question I would have is: Are all the subtleties of imaginal practice available and accessible while moving or while dancing? Now, they they might be, or they might possibly be uh, if one practices with it and trains with it, or it might be just, just the, by virtue of moving and dancing. Actually, um, where kind of limiting just how delicate and sensitive um, uh, we can be at that time in relationship to an image, and therefore how, again, how fertile, how deep, how rich, um, how potent the soul-making can be in relation to that image. Um, but as I said, to be explored, um, experimented with, re researched, you know, um, uh, for myself, for others, for for all of us, if we're interested in that, um, which I certainly am. Um, so I want to be careful, you know, in teaching this that uh, the whole logos doesn't kind of just reflect my tendencies or my kind of capacities um, at the expense of 
different capacities that someone else might have. Um, but I hope that all makes sense. So we can talk, and we have been talking about, like, what is it to take care of the ground of images and the ground of soul? What is it to um, have a, a, a good working alchemical vessel? What is it to take care of the gestation, the birth, and the um, aftercare, if you like, of um, of, of the birth, uh, and, and to have a good womb, and to have um, the possibility of the birthing of images and, and the tending to what is born there. Um, some of you, he's not that well known actually, but um, there was a great um, pagan philosopher and Neoplatonist called Iamblichus, Iamblichus, I-A-M-B-L-I-C-H-U-S, and uh, lived many centuries ago. And um, he talked about, uh, in relation to uh, pagan rituals and um, the relationship with the gods, etc. And um, talked about that he used a certain word, a Greek word, um, epit. Epidetiotis, I don't know if I'm saying it right, epidetiotis. The word doesn't um, matter in Greek, but what, what he really meant was um, the kind of fitness or aptitude to receive a form, to receive, um, let, let's say, an image for our purposes. Um, the, uh, in other words, the, 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 the care of the vessel, the care for the, for the, for the womb and the birth, etc., um, this epitadeotis is this fitness or aptitude. Um, it came to be used by Neoplatonists um, to explain why there were different kind of um, experiences in, in a ritual, for example, um, different mystical experiences. Uh, and an image which parallels some of the Buddha's image, just as dry wood um, provides the capacity, the fitness or aptitude, the epitideotis, for fire to be um, to manifest, to be actual. Um, so similarly, um, the purity of a soul uh, provides the capacity for a god to become manifest. Um, this is actually from a, a book by... Uh, I can't remember his first name, but the second name's Shaw. I think it's Geoffrey Shaw, um, called Theurgy and the Soul. I think that's a lot about uh, Iamblichus's teachings. Um, uh, so Plotinus, as well, the uh, you like I don't know, like founder of Neoplatonism, um, also um, accounted for different experiences of souls in the presence of. Um, of the holy ideas um, uh, as to, you know, being um, due to the, the differences um, in uh, in the fitness of the recipient, the, 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 the quality of the vessel at that time. So we don't have to make, like, this person or that person is, uh, you know, always more fit or that's who they are. It's at the time the vessel is like this. At, the, at another time the vessel is like that. Yeah. Um, the Amlicus teaching uh, so, so Plotinus actually compared it to the reception of light in clear or muddy water yeah? so how that, how that water kind of holds or 
um, reflects or uh, carries the light, the sunlight that, that falls on it, um, differs a lot if it's muddy or clear, or etc. Um, uh, for Yamlukas, it's interesting, his teaching is very much, um, it's, it's quite, he puts it in the passive, like it's the gods doing things. So when we talk about uh, the element of autonomy, that the image has autonomy, uh, meaning personhood and intelligence and will. So Yamukas very much emphasizes that as opposed to, uh, as being more important than we can do this or it's in our control what happens, um, what experiences happen or um, uh, what mystical openings happen, etc. Um, so he talks uh, very much in, in the passive and and the fitness, the epiteriotis, the aptitude of a passive element to receive the influence of an active one, um, in, in this case, a god. Um, what else to say about this? So, um, purifications, so it's partly to do with purity for him, um, this word, which is a loaded word, I know, but I'm going to try and give it a certain slant. Um, they're necessary for every soul. Um, and so Yamukas says that the time one spends in prayer nourishes the intuitive mind uh, and generally enlarges the soul's receptacle for the gods. Um, uh, the soul's readiness for divine transformation um, uh, is talking about this aptitude, this fitness, this uh, it, describe, it describes conditions of the soul that are fit to receive the God. Uh, d- describes a kind of cleansing of the soul that makes it fit. Um, so the soul itself was a kind of receptacle for, of the God. The soul itself is the alchemical vessel, if you like, in this, in this uh, well, we make a, too much of a stretch of analogy there. Um, in our uh, paradigm, in our language, then, then it, if you like, all the elements of the imaginal, all those 28 nodes, and maybe more, as we talked about, maybe vulnerability is one, um, certainly humility, certainly the imaginal middle way, the theatre-like quality, the neither real nor not real, certainly the openness to duty, certainly reverence and um, love, fullness of intention, all of these, we could say, are part of... Um, the epididiotis, the the caring for the epididiotis, the the aptitude, the um, the fitness to receive image and to receive divine image, and um, they're part of the purity. You can hear um, the humility, the, the the reverence, the willingness, the openness to duty, the love, the fullness of intention. These these all have to do with purity of soul at that time, and um, they allow. Uh, the um, image to become um, fully imaginal and, and the sense of divinity and, and all the rest of it. Um, and also, you know, the uh, as we said before, the relationship with emotions. This is all part of the fitness of, of the vehicle, the aptitude, the, the, let's say, the caring for the vessel at the time. Yes? Okay, so we're going to go into... Um, in quite a bit more detail some of this, but I just wanted to give um, some hopefully helpful uh, pointers today.